Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And now, battle ready with Father Dan Rehill. Good day. Welcome to Battle Ready. It's so good to be with you. Let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I adore thee profoundly. I offer thee the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present in all the tabernacles of the world in reparation for the outrages, sacrileges, and indifferences whereby he is offended and to the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and the immaculate heart of Mary, I beg of thee the conversion of poor sinners. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, today, an interesting topic. I'm going to go back to the Mass. But first, the reason for this. So for, I think it's been nine months Nine months ago, I ordered an altar rail for the church. Beautiful red oak, custom carved, <clears throat> beautiful altar rail. I didn't think it was going to take nine months. It's, I guess it's like having a baby. We waited forever. But it finally arrived, and it has been installed. And uh, just this week, so uh, we just started using it. And the most amazing thing has started to happen. This was the first weekend it's been installed. First of all, um, I was surprised because many more people came and uh, of course everybody lines up at the rail, some standing, some kneeling, whatever your preference. And I'll get to the um, church's um, instruction on what we should be doing later so that you know what you should be doing. But um, you may stand, you may kneel. And what happened was many more people who used to stand for Holy Communion are now kneeling. And I think that's a good thing because um, we're, you're kneeling before God. Now, certainly some people can't kneel, and that's perfectly okay. In fact, I had one gentleman who can barely walk. He has a walker, and he tried to kneel, and... Um, it was a very difficult thing, and I told him, you know, you really shouldn't be kneeling because it's just too much for you. Uh, your sacrifice will be to stand. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was many more people are now receiving communion on the tongue. Um, I think that's also a very good thing. Why is that, Father? Well, you know, we're going to go through this today. This is what I'm going to talk about. Now, please don't be offended if you receive communion in the hand. The church allows for this. Um but only for a short time. It's only been since, I think, 1972 that communion in the hand was um, allowed. The prior 1,200 years, it was not allowed. So from the 8th century on, never allowed, forbidden, in fact. And then this is a recent um, anomaly that happened after Vatican II. And it was really that the Pope's hand was forced because people, priests started doing it without permission from the Vatican. And there was just, uh, it was so overwhelming that rather than condemn all these people, the Pope uh, caved and gave permission. Um, anyway, back to the altar rail. So 
if you don't have an altar rail, start praying that your priest or your pastor would be inspired to get one. It, first of all, it, it's a beautiful thing to look at. It, it improves the, the beauty of the sanctuary uh, immediately, like just adds such a depth of um, reverence to the sanctuary. And as I said, it's also inspiring people to properly adore the Lord. And that's one of the conditions whereby we receive communion. You cannot come up and receive communion without adoring the Lord first. That's uh, been taught by um, not only the general instruction of the Roman Missal, but also by, I don't know if Francis has talked about it, but I know Benedict and Pope John Paul II wrote books about this. So very important. And, And if you're standing, you're supposed to do a, a profound bow to the Lord before receiving. So um, where do I go from here? Well, let's begin with how – here's a, a premise I want people to consider. And if, if you're prayerful people, take it to prayer. Does the Lord have a preference – I would say beyond a preference – does the Lord instruct us as to how we worship him? Oh, he absolutely does. He absolutely does. Now, this this doesn't mean you can't worship him uh, in whatever way you desire in your private time. But when we come together for liturgy, which is the communal worship of God, particularly in the Mass, he very much has um, instructed how he wants things to be done. Let's go back uh, to Moses. Good old Moses. Moses, um, he leads all the children of Israel out from bondage. And then they get to Mount Sinai. Uh, And God says to Moses, come on up the mountain and wait there, and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I've written uh, for their instruction. So Moses goes to God as he's been instructed, and God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. But along with the moral code, that we all have to live by. He also commanded Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, a lampstand, uh, their place of worship and its surroundings. So right away we see God has his own ideas about how he wants to set things up. And he even told Moses exactly how he wanted the inside of the place of worship to be situated. It's all in the Old Testament, you can go read it. Uh, Then God told Moses to establish the Levitical priesthood. So these were the men who would be set apart for God so uh, they could do the ritual of sacrifice. The altar is always about sacrifice. And he wanted them to be consecrated, or another word you could use is ordained, to him, to God. And once God had set apart the Levitical priesthood to worship and make sacrifices to him, this is on behalf of the people, he instructed Moses exactly how the priests were to be dressed to make themselves worthy to stand in his presence at the Ark of the Covenant. So God's taking this all very seriously. You know, this isn't, you know, make it up as you go. Well, then God told them exactly how he wanted to be worshipped in word and deed. And he demanded offerings of bread and grain, of wine and of flesh to be made daily for divine worship. And he demanded absolute obedience to these sacrifices and everything connected with them for his worship. And this is what he said. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I commend you this day, 
the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. That's from Deuteronomy 28.1. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, then all these curses shall come down upon you and overtake you. Deuteronomy 28.15. So God was and still is very serious about how he is to be worshipped. And there's grave consequences for disobedience. Now, that's the Old Testament. What happens when he brings, Jesus brings forth uh, the new covenant? And um, the pinnacle of the new covenant is the mass, which is how we communally worship God. And the mass has been set up so that we could offer uh, worship, adoration, and praise, and thanksgiving to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, who is made present on the altar in an unbloody manner, his passion, death, and resurrection. That's what happens. And he has been very, very, very pointed about how he wants us to do this. Think about it, you know. If um, if God had such a, a, a description for the Old Testament, then how much more would he have for the the, the way we celebrate uh, the the Mass, which isn't, you know, the Holy of Holies was um, the room. It was the innermost sacred chamber of the temple. And it was a perfect cube, and and it uh, it was the symbol of Israel's special covenant and relationship with God. The Holy of Holies was accessible only to the Israelite high priest, and you were only allowed in once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest entered into the small, windowless little enclosure, and he would burn incense, and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat of the ark. And by doing this, the high priest was atoning for his own sins and the sins of the people. And and this Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the uh, temple by a huge veil, this heavy drape. It was made of very fine linen of purples and blues and scarlets, and it was embroidered with gold cherubim. So you can see how this is this is such a special place set apart uh, for this this uh, one act a year that they're doing this. And what was in there? Well, it was the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what was in the Ark? The Ark is this uh, beautiful gold-plated uh, box, and it contained a gold jar of the manna. It contained Aaron's staff. And it contained the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's it. And it, we're told from the scriptures that the Lord hovered above the ark in spirit. So he has all these very strict rules about the ark and the temple and the Holy of Holies. And uh, God hovered above the ark. Well, <clears throat> let's think about this. One more thing you need to know. The one day a year when the high priest would go into the um, Holy of Holies to sprinkle the mercy seat, he attached to himself a scarlet rope that was tied to his foot. And he also wore bells around his waist. 
Why did he do that? Because the Lord said, if you are not properly prepared and you do not properly cleanse yourself and put on the proper clothing when you come into the Holy Holies, you will be struck dead. Oh, struck dead. So the Israelites realized if the high priest is struck dead, who's going to go in and get him out? Nobody, because they would be struck dead. So they attached the rope to the high priest. And if the bell stopped ringing, it meant that the priest uh, was dead on the floor and they were to pull him out by the rope. This is how seriously both the Israelites and God took the worship and the um, liturgy that was set up by God for his people. Okay, now we go to uh, Jesus comes into the world, establishes at the Last Supper, uh, the Mass. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he gives them instructions. Now, everything that Jesus did and said is not in the Bible. It says, in fact, in the scriptures that if everything Jesus did and said was to be written, it couldn't be, it would not, it would fill all the books in the world. There wouldn't be enough space to put them in. I'm sure he gave them, first of all, they would be celebrating the mass when he ascended, not when he ascended, when he rose from the dead and came back, they would be gathering to celebrate what he asked them to do in remembrance of him. And it would be in those ways that he would start to uh, instruct them. And they did establish very quickly how the mass was said. Now, initially, there were no churches because the Romans were still killing the Christians. So these were happening. Masses were uh, either underground or in homes. Uh, once they started killing uh, the Christians, the martyrs, they built catacombs underground to bury them. And masses were said down there. So the first 300 years, the church was very different than what we're used to. In fact, about the first 300 years, there were no churches because they had to do them in secret. The masses were done in secret. Once uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Constantine converts the empire to Christendom and his mother Helen starts uh, bringing all the sacred artifacts of, our, uh, of the Christian experience, the cross and the nails and all sorts of things back to um, her son, she starts building churches, and churches went up all over the kingdom. So now we have places of worship established. But for the next four or five hundred years, there were no pews in the churches. People would enter the church and simply stand. There were no tabernacles in the churches because they hadn't even thought about housing Jesus. It was commonly practiced that once the bread and wine were turned into the body and blood, that they were fully consumed by the people present. There was no leftover. Well, after another few hundred years, people who were sick started complaining. I can't get to church. Can you please bring me communion? And so um, the bishops started realizing maybe we should uh, reserve some of the, the Blessed Sacrament in a sacred tabernacle like the Ark of the Covenant so that when people are sick or are dying, we could bring them Holy Communion. That was the reason the tabernacle uh, came into existence. It was to reserve the Eucharist for the sick. Well, after several decades or centuries, people begin to realize, well, if Jesus is in there, we can come to the churches and we can just adore him. So adoration and worship of the Blessed Sacrament uh, sprung out of 
having the Eucharist reserved in the tabernacle. And this is the evolution of how what your church looks like today came to be. And, you know, initially, especially through the, the Middle Ages, all the churches were built in a cruciform manner, meaning there's the center uh, body of the church called the nave, and at the front towards the altar there would be two kind of apses that would spring out to the left and right that, that would be the shape of the cross. And the sanctuary would be, the top of the cross would be where Jesus's head would be. And often those were built uh, off center to the left because his head would have fallen to the left after he died. Uh, and that was very common. And they always faced east. Uh, and then with the advent of modern times, uh, more and more churches started being built in much different uh, manners and uh, all sorts of representations happened that not, not all of them were great. But anyway, that's the evolution of how the church came to be. So when we think about the mass, when we think about the mass, um, oh, one more thing I must mention about the Old Testament. So the ark, the ark frequently was moved from city to city as David, the king, moved around. On one such occasion, uh, the ark was being transported. It's pulled by oxen, and the cart stumbled. And there was a man named Uzzah who tried to steady the ark. And the scriptures say God's anger burned against Uzzah and struck him down, and he died. Now, for us, Uzzah's punishment seems a bit extreme. After all, he was just trying to steady the ark. But there was a strict instruction that nobody could touch the ark except an ordained priest, the Levitical priests. And Uzzah broke that law, and God struck him dead. Remember, this ark doesn't contain God. God hovered above it in spirit. So God takes his law very seriously. Why do I say all this? Because now we're going to talk about our Mass. Now, when we have the Blessed Sacrament, the Blessed Sacrament is literally the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus Christ, the Son. This isn't the Spirit hovering above the host. He is the host. And so how much more careful and lovingly should we be approaching and receiving and touching that host? The priest and the deacon and the bishops, of course, uh, we are um, ordained to do this. We have hands that have been consecrated during the ordination uh, ceremony, and God has uh, literally changed our souls in a manner with the ordination that we would never be uh, changed back to before we were ordained. So there's something special, mysterious even, I would say, that happens at ordination that um, gives the authority to ordained men to handle the Blessed Sacrament. And that is something very sacred. Uh, many of the saints, Alphonsus Liguori being probably the first among them, have written profusely about this responsibility of handling Jesus as the Blessed Sacrament. And um, not only is there a responsibility, but there are great, grave consequences for those who mishandle the host. Here's the problem, and I've noticed this in my own experience as a priest. When we minister communion in the hand, 
oftentimes it's received disrespectfully. People, there's a lot of people who don't know what they're receiving, even uh, adults, it would appear, because they casually um, stick out, like sometimes they stick out one hand, kind of like, and, and it's just such a casual thing. They don't reverence it, they don't bow, they don't even nod their head to him. Um, that's let them, why do I say this? Because I see, I, I would say it's very much less common for that to happen with somebody who's kneeling to receive communion on the tongue. Because just by the very act of kneeling, they're demonstrating, they understand that this, they are lower than what they are receiving. A person who bows or kneels is, gen that the, the message you're sending to the other person is, I'm deferring to you, you're greater than I. Remember years ago when Obama bowed to the, I think it was the Chinese president, how everybody was appalled? Because why would we bow to another president? At the very least, we're on equal footing. We don't bow to him. Uh, but to God, we always would be lesser. So we do bow or kneel. Okay, the next thing is that the general instruction of the Roman Missal, this, this is in the beginning of the book that the priest uses that uh, instructs how to celebrate the Mass, and within those pages are all the parts of the Mass that the priest uh, proclaims and reads from to the people. You know, not the readings, the other book on the altar. That book, even t still to this day, uh, states very clearly that communion on the tongue remains the usual and common form of administering Holy Communion. It says communion in the hand is legitimate only where permitted, and that is the secondary way to receive communion. It's not the primary. The ordinary form of reception of Holy Communion is on the tongue. The extraordinary way, meaning the, the optional way, when permitted by the bishop, is in the hand. So you can see from the language that the church still says that the communion and the tongue is the preferred way it should be received. And they have their own reasons. Why did they do this? Well, first of all, it's less likely that the host will fall from the tongue because the tongue is wet and the host sticks to it. This just happened this weekend. Somebody was receiving in the hand. Their hands were not flat and the host slid off and they, they drop to the floor, and then I have to pick it up and consume it. Um, and it's 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 horrible when that happens. And we even have uh, altar servers with patents to try to catch the host. But because the man was in an awkward position on the other side of the rail, the altar server couldn't catch the host. It was very unfortunate. Uh, secondly, there are people who come to try to steal the hosts, particularly around uh, solstices and equinoxes. We have one coming up. Friday, so my uh, ushers and my uh, altar service are going to be on guard, and we'll even have altar service posted at the ends of the communion rail to watch to make sure everybody receives the tongue into their mouth. The not their tongue, of course not. The host goes into their mouth before they walk away, because there were witches and Wiccans that like to steal those hosts, and on those days of the year, and also on Halloween, they have. Um, sacrilegious black masses and they desecrate the Eucharist. You may think that's uh, fodder. It's not. 
I've spoken to real witches who've converted, and it's a real thing. And do you know what the going price is on the market for a real host from a Catholic church? About $6,000. They'll pay somebody to get one of those hosts. So very real thing. And the church knew this, and they said, we're going to, it's much more, uh, plus the lay people's hands aren't consecrated. And so this is all the reasons why the church, in her wisdom, would prefer people receive on the tongue. Now, if you receive in the hand and you do it reverently, you're fine, I would say. If it displeases God, his displeasure is going to be with the bishops, not with you, because you're just following what you're allowed to do. Uh, But having said that, prayerfully take this to a contemplative moment, I would say before the Eucharist, and ask Jesus, how would you like me to receive communion? If he says receive me in the hand, then you're fine and have no worries about it. If he says receive me on your tongue, then you should probably do that. But um, leave it up to the Lord. It is him you're receiving. Okay. Finally, uh, when we read, when we do receive Jesus, we're told by many um, of our popes, and I think one of the best ones to, to look at would be Benedict. Where are you, Benedict? Let me find you. Uh, okay, we'll start with um, Pius the Tenth. Uh, he makes this point that we must... Now let's go back to the angelic Dr. Aquinas. Aquinas, possibly the greatest theologian in the history of the church, he says this, for various reasons among which... Um, oh, this is talking about him. Uh, he says this, out of reverence towards the Blessed Sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated. Hence the corporal and the chalice are consecrated. That's true. And likewise, the priest's hands for touching this sacrament. Hence, it is not lawful for anyone else to touch it except from necessity. For instance, if it were to fall upon the ground or else in some other case of urgency. So that's the angelic doctor who we would. And Augustine says the same thing, by the way. He would be the probably number one and two theologians of all time. Uh, I'm only doing this to inform you so you have an informed conscience on how to receive uh, but ultimately, it will be your decision. Uh, Benedict XVI, in his encyclical Sacramentum Caritatis, the Sacrament of Love, which is the Eucharist, teaches this. No one eats that flesh without first adoring it. We should sin were we not to adore it. Kneeling indicates and promotes the adoration necessary for receiving the Holy Eucharist of Christ. Of course, if you can't kneel because you have bad knees, or whatever ailment, you would be exempt from this. So these are the reasons we have the altar rail. Finally, before we go, I'm going to leave you with John Paul II, who is so beloved by so many people. He also wrote uh, many encyclicals. One of them is called Ecclesia de Eucharistia. Uh, the church comes from the Eucharist. And in paragraph 61, he said, by giving the Eucharist the prominence it deserves, and by being careful not to diminish any of its dimensions or demands, we show that we are truly conscious of the greatness of this gift. We are urged to do so by an uninterrupted tradition from which the first centuries on has found the Christian community ever vigilant in guarding this treasure. Inspired by love, the church is anxious to hand on to future generations of Christians without loss, her faith and teaching with regard to the mystery of the Eucharist. There can be no danger of excess 
in our care for this mystery. For in this sacrament is recapitulated the whole mystery of our salvation. Boy, he was a brilliant writer. God bless you all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a wonderful day. This is Father Dan signing out. Mm -hmm.